Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I just want to say that that song induced a mild in the chair bopping moment for senior producer Lily Tyson, who I can see through the glass over there. I mean, it wasn't like a, you know, <laughs> it wasn't like a dance contest kind of bopping, but there was some bopping going on. Some chair bopping was happening in there. Um, so, because how can you resist? All right. So we're going to talk. Well, let me just back up and say something. So I'm sitting here in a radio studio in Hartford, Connecticut. The mayor of Hartford is a guy named Luke Bronin. And uh, I've always said that if, in fact, we're going to lose the planet, you know, if it's like an interstellar kind of situation and we're just going to have to send people someplace else, start the human <laughs> start the human race over someplace else, obviously, they're not going to send me. Um, but, you know, Luke and his wife, Sarah, are, I think they're both Rhodes Scholars, uh, Luke is a lawyer and a successful politician and a recording artist. He wrote a song that was used on Dawson's Creek. Can there be any higher musical attainment? Sarah is both a lawyer and an architect and serves on all kinds of really important boards and stuff like that. So I've all long said that if we're in an interstellar kind of situation and we have to send a small group of people someplace else to get the human race going, We should probably send the Bronins. Um, Now, the thing about that is that the human race is going to be a a bit shorter if we do that, Um, you know, and which is fine, right? I mean, it's like, (laughs) like, why why would that matter? It wouldn't matter at all. Just a passing observation, except that for the purposes of at least part of the show today, it's not a passing observation because the case can be made and will be made in just a few minutes that we would be better off doing that here. (laughs) In fact, we might not need to go to that other planet uh, if we could figure out a way to do that here. Uh, And one of the people most involved in that kind of thinking is our first guest, uh, Arna Hendricks, uh, an artist, researcher, exhibition maker based in Amsterdam. Uh, He writes about height on his website, The Incredible Shrinking Man. So um, first of all, uh, Arna, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we should say that your thinking about this is not driven by any kind of resentment towards tall people or resentment of the way in which shorter people are, are treated in the world because you're one of the taller people, right? I am. I am. I'm 6'4". 
And I mean, I'm not freakishly tall, but I'm I'm pretty tall. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty damn tall, I would say. So oh, okay, um, not in this country, but um, <laughs> yeah, obviously. Well, you guys have to be taller because you know the water levels rising. Uh, Got to yeah. keep your head above water. So, um, so explain your theory about this. Your theory is something to the effect that, in fact, tall people are kind of a problem, just in terms of resources, space, air, water. They just use a lot more of everything. Yeah, that's basically it. That's the theory. Smaller people need less. And uh, as we are, you know, approaching or even we already passed 8 billion people on this tiny planet, basically, it would be better if we were a bit smaller so that we don't need so much and that we can, you know, live a more abundant life with, with less resources. Now, some people listening would, some people listening would say, well, height, height's a vertical dimension. So, uh, so why focus on height? I mean, why would height necessarily mean that you consume more calories or that you're bigger, you take up more space horizontally. What's your answer to that? Yeah, yeah, that's of course partially true, uh, except for the fact that because of the laws of proportion, uh, when you, for instance, if if if, if you grow 10 centimeters, 10% taller, let's say, mm -hmm. um, this on average means that you, you also grow 33% heavier uh, because mass just increases in three dimensions, you know, uh, because every every object and a body is kind of an object has three dimensions. And so if if you would increase 10 percent in height, you would also increase in width and in depth. So that would be one point one times one point one times one point one is one point thirty three uh, is 33 is percent more mass. So height does have a, a, a huge effect on height, uh, on, on weight, basically, and on how much you need. Uh, a person that is uh, 180 centimeters, I don't know, you have to translate that for me, um, is 72% is, is uh, heavier than a person that is 150 centimeters. I'm sorry, I'm from the metric system. I hope that doesn't ca cause a, a huge problem. I, I think we, we find the metric system very charming here. We don't know what it is or what you're talking about, but we enjoy hearing people. Nobody really knows. No. I mean, it's just something you grow no, up it's with. Just some, I think it's just some made-up numbers, actually. But um, <laughs> So, no. So, you know, there is this notion, kind of a casual notion, that the human race has just gotten steadily taller. You know, that, that, that for example, I think in what we think of as ancient Rome, uh, imperial Rome, let's say, uh, people were, I think they kind of maxed out around five, six, five, seven, something like that. And that we've just sort of gotten taller as a species. Now, my understanding is you think that's not entirely correct. Um, in what way? I mean, we, we, we become taller because of our desire to become taller, basically, right? We, we choose our partners because we're attracted to heights. In, in, in a way, when I look at my own body, I always think this is kind of a, uh, the desire for more in the flesh. So somehow since then, um, since the Romans, uh, um, this desire for, for, for tallness has somehow uh, creeps into us. Of course, we've gone through uh, higher and lower uh, aspects. That, like in the Middle Ages, we we didn't used to be so so tall. Um, but I see the body as a kind of a, an outcome of all kinds of forces. But one of them definitely is the desire for more and for growth. Right. So so people want to by by and large, people given the choice are probably most people are going to pick tall. But another point that you make is it's not necessarily a great health choice. Right. There are. There are implications to being tall that are not favorable to your longevity, to your health. Talk about those. Yeah, true. It's I mean, but this is also the paradox of my investigation. So on the one hand, I talk about it would be better if we if we if we need less, so it would be better to be smaller. On the other hand, I'm trying to seduce people into buying into this idea 
by 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 explaining that height uh, actually uh, above 150 centimeters there it is again uh, height every centimeter takes about two to six months of your average life expectancy so under the same circumstances being smaller being 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 less tall is actually a better proposition you would actually um, life expectancy just just blossoms when you're small so, so but, that's one of the things that I try to try to tell people: it's like, don't, don't, don't think that being tall is is necessarily only good. There are there are health repercussions to it. Uh, it's 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 one of the less sexy aspects of the the research, I would say, but I think it's one of the most appealing to most. Although, by the way, I'm getting all kinds of data being fed to me by two different producers here. So 150 centimeters for people uh, doing this at home uh, is 59 inches or 4'11". 180 centimeters would be 70 inches, 5'10". Uh, so ah. we, we got all that figured out. So using your theory, I, I'm not here to poke holes in your theory, uh, but no. using your theory, I mean, if people live longer when they're short, we could also get stuck with a large aging population of short people. If we had more of them, we're going to take care of them. That uses a bunch of resources, too. At least tall people have the good grace to die sooner. Well, that's true. Um, but but it's like with if you if you need a lot of resources in a very short time, it's like if if you take a few trees out of the the, the forest uh, one by one, uh, then it doesn't really matter. But if you chop up up the entire forest in one go, then it's very difficult for the for the for the forest to recover. What I'm trying to say is that it's it's not about it's about living within the border. So you can live a longer life as long as you don't use up everything in one go. So we you know we uh, it doesn't really matter how uh, old you get. If you exist in the parameters of what this planet can sustain, right? But if you go overboard like we are, then at some point it ends. Right. So the planet is sending us some messages about that, too. One of them is in the form of a principle that I had not heard before called Bergman's Rule. Uh, Tell us what Bergman's Rule says. Uh, Bergman's rule is very simply that, that a lot of animal species living closer to the equator, so where it's warmer, are, are smaller, are, are smaller sized. And when you live up more up north, you're bigger. So that's Bergman's rule. It's one of these evolutionary uh, things. But um, one of the interesting, um, let's say, consequences of this rule is that as global warming is taking more and more effect, uh, species all over the planet have already begun to shrink. To shrink. So bird species, uh, uh, fish, uh, uh, crustaceans, you will find so many evidences of animals actually already starting to respond to this global warming by becoming smaller, Um, except for people. Because we have such a thick uh, cultural buffer, uh, we are able to ignore, let's say, the environmental cues that maybe would be better to become a bit smaller. Right. Right. Shrimp are getting shrimpier, but we at least can temporarily avoid that destiny by, as you say, kind of shielding ourselves from the kind of geothermal realities. Um, Exactly. So, and we should also say there's another uh, thing with a name that's worth mentioning, and, and that is the Denel phenomenon, uh, named after Auguste Denel. Explain what that says. Yeah, this is amazing. This is one of the things when I found out about it, I was just jumping up and down. So, um, one way to explain it is because it is through the uh, the iguanas on the Galapagos Islands. Now they eat seagrass that grows around these islands, and the seagrass doesn't really grow very well under warmer conditions. It likes cold water. Uh, but because of global warming again, the seagrass is now growing less. And that means that these iguanas living on these rocky islands of the Galapagos, they have less food. At the same time, the planet is warming up because they're cold-blooded animals. They need to eat more to do the same thing. So they need more, but they have less. And what what they can do to battle this problem is actually called the Denel phenomenon. 
So they shrink. They don't just shrink their, their, their fat and their muscles. They shrink everything, including the skeleton. They can shrink up to 20%. Now, this is, of course, and I'm talking about the individual animal, right? I'm not talking about their babies. I'm talking about this particular animal able to shrink when conditions are a little bit more difficult as they are now. That's called the dental phenomenon. You know, the other thing that was pointed out to me in connection with this that I hadn't really thought about very much is that the kind of wide variation in heights that we see in Homo sapiens is kind of unusual. I mean, last night I was watching a basketball game where one of the players was seven feet tall. He weighed 250 pounds. But, you know, I think later in the night I might have watched a movie where, I don't know, Michael J. Fox is five foot three or five foot four or something like that. That. You don't really see that that much in the exact same species. <laughs> you don't see a duck that's like way bigger than all the other ducks. No, that's right. We are one of the most hypervariable species uh, in existence, uh, together with dogs, I think. Uh, they also have very, very different sizes. It's interesting. And I, I like that you're talking about basketball players because I, I, I'm super inspired by people like Shaquille O'Neal or Ray, Nate Robinson. They used to be together, play together in the Celtics. And the difference between the, these two players just is so gigantic that it really inspired me to also think about the body and you know how that relates to the environment. Uh, James Harden is one of my biggest heroes, uh, basically because he's so good at doing the step back, right? Where he steps back to score a point. He creates space by doing a step back, which in a way is an, a beautiful metaphor uh, for what I'm trying to say. Like if we would take a step back as a species, if we would take a step back and become a bit smaller, we would have space. Uh, and we would have abundance. Um, James Harden uh, really shows that by, by the way he plays the, the game of basketball. Right. Um, although I feel like his beard uses up a lot of resources. So, um, but let's let's continue with that step back metaphor because it really is a very nice one. I, I think a very elegant one. So, if we were to take a step back, and we shouldn't call it that anyway, because we're really we want to make a step forward and become a more efficient species, less damaging to the earth and less damaging to ourselves, and more able to sustain our existence here on the planet. So, it's kind of a step forward. But I mean, how do you how do you make that happen? How do you make people? First of all, you got to make people want to do this, which is maybe goes a little bit against their their natural inclinations. So let's start there. How do you how do you sell the idea? Yeah, well, by talking a lot about it, like we're talking about it right now. I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to point out is, for instance, the relationship between health and 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 height. Um, but I think the most important uh, thing is that we need to be inspired, right? That we need to see the beauty of smallness. Somehow, uh, our culture always supports more and the idea of growth and bigger, but our culture has stopped uh, supporting the idea of less and shrinkage. And somehow, as an artist, I feel that we need to find stories, find movements, find exercises that can disrupt that uh, obsession with growth, as I call it. Um, one of the one of the things that I look at, uh, for instance, is is cancer. Like like cancer is everybody's least favorite form of growth. I would say, right? Mm -hmm. So it also it reminds us that growth is not always great. That there are malignant forms of growth. And although it's a very uh, yeah harsh sort of disease to investigate, I feel that it has a lot to tell us as well. All these things that happen within a tumor are processes that sometimes translate pretty well to what we're doing as a species to our planet or, or how, how our economy sort of uh, tries to take it all, goes for profit, etc., etc. 
So um, there are stories out there. There are people out there. There are processes out there that can actually allow us to see other things uh, uh, other than growth, other than this idea that growth is always good or that we can always grow out of trouble. With cancer, you cannot grow out of trouble. You have to really do something different. Yes, I mean, an awful lot of cancer treatment involves shrinking tumors uh, uh, and, exactly. and, and checking growth. So, yes, instead of saying you're very tall, we would say you have Shaquille's disease. Um, and, and and so, look, let's say that we managed to uh, invert current public opinion to a substantial degree. We get people interested in this idea that maybe it's not so good for us all to be tall. But how do you re how do you inverse or re-engineer the human body? I mean, how do you how do you take a body that you know is, is or, or a species that has attained a certain kind of height and get it to move in a different direction? Well, if you look at the speed of how fast we've grown taller, this is of course an unnatural sort of phenomenon. I'm the Dutch. The Dutch are the tallest people in the world. I'm from the Netherlands. We are the tallest people in the world. We grew on average 20 centimeters over over a little bit more than a century. Um, in a in a, yeah, a maybe strange way, this is proof that we could also turn that around. Um, so the fact that we always grow taller as a species is in, in a sort of reversed engineered way also the proof that it shouldn't be so difficult to turn that process around uh, by having a different diet, obviously by maybe choosing our partners in a different way. Um, environmental conditions have a role, uh, like we just established with this Bergman's rule, right? We could find places where somehow um, uh, uh, the environmental conditions wouldn't, I don't know, push us in this sort of competitive height race that we are in. Uh, I know it sounds a bit abstract, but 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 at the same time, you have to understand that we've also grown taller, and that conditions have somehow existed for us to continue to grow taller, and we. I think mistakenly always connect the idea of tallness to goodness, that it somehow represents a quality. I think um, what we have to start understanding is that smallness in, in, in many, many uh, situations can be a much better quality to have. Um, and then if our desire goes in that direction, I feel that somehow our body will follow because that's what happens and that's why we became so tall. Right. So I think we're particularly looking at the Dutch in this context. I assume we're look, talking about some kind of almost prohibition for cheese. Like it would be illegal. Uh, only cartels would sell it. It would cost like $700, $700 a pound yeah. or something. Yeah. I mean, I like I like entertaining fantasies like this. I once did a, a celebrate <laughs> lactose intolerance party and I did it in Beijing because I wanted to uh, – talk to the Chinese and, and basically tell them, hey, be happy that you're lactose intolerant because 90% of the people or even 95% of Chinese is actually lactose intolerant. And you are so right. Uh, lactose or, or dairy products do stimulate, let's say, the, the increase of, of tallness, of height. There is a, there is a uh, percentual uh, increase in height if you eat a lot of dairy, uh, which is not a promotion in this case, but a, a demotion. Is, is that a word? I don't know. I wouldn't promote eating dairy. I would say, don't do it. Right. I, I don't. I don't feel. You know, I've, I've always told my children about this, and I said, don't eat dairy. I didn't forbid them to eat dairy, but I said, don't do it. And they are not. Uh, they 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 don't. They don't drink milk. They don't eat a lot of cheese. And I'm very happy about that because I'm already tall. So why would I want to push their height to even greater uh, heights? Yeah, although in the U.S. that's sometimes called pulling up the ladder, you know, like you're like the last person who gets to be tall, and that, your kids may throw that at you at some point. But um, let, let me if just you think 
great quality. <laughs> well, he, here's the thing. Well, I would love to ask you about your kids, first of all, because even though their diet may have some impact on this, I'm guessing genetics is has an even bigger by percentage impact on whether you're tall or not. So oh. are, are they are they turning out to be tall? Do you know yet? Yeah, they're, they're quite tall, but they won't be as tall as I am. They'll be maybe, maybe 6'1". Okay. Hopefully not more than six two, okay. which is a small small change, but it's at least it's not bigger than I am. Yeah, we're not going to do this overnight. Uh, so uh, yeah, I mean, incremental. We're also not going to we're also not going to do it by force. We're not going to force people to do this. It's all about desire and sort of making a good case for it, so that people will start to think about it, and hopefully start to embrace these ideas at some point, and and and, and slowly cultivate a different desire. Right. So we really do need a global publicity campaign, a global messaging campaign about what we're saying here on this one radio show today. You're just one person. I'm just one person. But uh, maybe we're the beginning of something. Um, so let me just say but one thing about you in terms of let me let me just sort of brainstorm with you an idea for the publicity campaign. I'm thinking of you hugging a giant pumpkin. Is that something you would be comfortable doing? <laughs> I love hugging giant pumpkins. It's one of my favorite things to do, actually. Um, so you're, 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 you're right on the money here. Hugging uh, giant pumpkins is a wonderful way to feel small for a split second, just to understand what it would like this incredible abundance that you would be shrinking towards. Uh, if you would become smaller as a species. So, yes, that's a great campaign. Let's do that. All right. So we've got to start, you know, and I actually, I really want to salute you for thinking about all this stuff. I just, I mean, what you're seeing is clearly true, <laughs> but I've never heard anybody say it before. So that's, this is the fascinating stuff. Uh, Arna Hendricks, uh, an artist, researcher, and exhibition maker based in Amsterdam. He writes about height at his website, which you can now check out, called The Incredible Shrinking Man. Thanks for taking some time to talk to me. Thank you. All right. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We're going to talk about how this plays out in the legal sphere. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
7A. What number is this, Chip? 7A. <laughs> okay, no, I mean, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short, I know. Oh, I could hide neath the wings of the bluebird as she sings. The six o'clock so uh, hats off to Jennifer LaRue, who's producing this episode, for thinking of that. I mean, she also produced an entire episode about the monkeys, so it kind of makes sense that she would think, I'm aware of that thing where they're doing that take, and Davy Jones says it's because I'm short. The other thing I want to tell you, apropos of absolutely nothing, is we may break some kind of public radio record in the next few days by playing, we're going to use Daydream Believer in a completely different context tomorrow, and we may have to use it again next week, too. So... I don't know what to say. I don't think we've ever relied so heavily on one song in our entire 13, 14-year existence. But anyway, that's not what the show's about. The show's about people who are shorter. Uh, and uh, joining us now is Tanya Osensky, a lawyer and author of the book Short Changed, Height Discrimination and Strategies for Social Change. So uh, first of all, uh, Tanya Osensky, welcome to our show. Thanks so much, and thank you for having me. So um, maybe just because I asked the last guest how tall he was, I should probably ask you. This is obviously something that you're passionate about, about discrimination against people based on height. How tall are you? I am four foot ten and a half. Okay. So <laughs> you will notice the difference between the super tall people kind of uh, trying to uh, say it down versus the super short people always trying to raise their inches a little bit. Right. No, that half inch is actually Sylvester Stallone insists that he's five, ten and a half. Um, mm -hmm. So there's, you know, there's but that's because I think people think Rocky should be even taller than that. Um, so. Let's talk a little bit about this. I mean, I don't think we we shouldn't need to explain to the, our audience ways in which uh, people who are shorter uh, are mistreated or discriminated against. But let's imagine that there are people who do need to hear this for some reason. Give us kind of the general thumbnail argument about this. Well, I, as, a, as a counter to what the last guest was talking about, how we have a preference for tallness and things to be bigger, um, so the counter of that is that we also kind of have a disdain for things that are smaller, um, things that are, and people that are shorter get to experience that. And the shorter they are, the more, you know, uh, directly on the other end of the spectrum they are, the more they experience this prejudice or this discrimination in our society. And it happens in just day-to-day -day kind of activities. It happens a lot against children in schools and, and in the medical profession. And it also happens in the workplace where short people make less money than tall people, are promoted less often than tall people, um, and on and on like that. Yeah, and it also seems to be an area where, and there are just a few of these left, to, what are the, what, to whatever extent we have tried to eradicate or at least somewhat suppress discrimination, prejudice, loaded language about subcultures and minority groups in our society. There are some that just, it's they're sort of regarded as maybe kind of okay, or you can get away with them, or you can tell a joke about this uh, in so-called mixed company uh, and express, expect fewer repercussions. And it mm -hmm. feels as though the short people thing is, is in that category, yes? 
Yes, absolutely. People just don't even consider it as an issue. People are not even aware that it's an issue. Um, and they just kind of, maybe it's because they think that height should not be an issue. So they kind of assume that it isn't, but we actually deep down inside care about it very much. And, um, and it just affects the way we see everything and on all the other people around us because it's relative. We always notice when somebody's shorter than us, we always notice when somebody's taller than us and it affects how we react with each other. So I, I wonder how you think this operates uh, or, or whether there's any kind of di- dichotomy in the area of gender. I mean, if you sort of look at popular culture, I don't know, we open the show with Little Bitty Pretty One, there's Five Foot Two Eyes of Blue. You wouldn't necessarily know this about me, but I have a pretty burgeoning hip-hop career, and so I can tell you that shorty is a term of endearment uh, from a man to a woman. So there might be some people who would look at that and go, well, it doesn't maybe weigh as heavily on women as it does on men. What's your take on that? I think in in some senses it doesn't. For example, in the dating uh, sphere, it probably doesn't. But if you're looking at it in all aspects of your life, and I will say, for example, in the workplace, it is much worse for women because women who are short get a double whammy. Not only are they women, but they're also super short. So it it just depends on the context. Um, So I would not agree that it's worse for men than it is for women. Maybe it is worse for them in in the dating aspect, but that's about the only area that it is worse. It, um, it is um, linguistically, I mean, there are, you sort of have already alluded to this, but, you know, things like half pint and shrimp boat and stuff like that. There are just disparagements that you, a person who might not be comfortable with a comparable level of disparagement of some other minority group. Again, these get kind of flung around like it's all in good fun, right? Right. Um, so let's just, first of all, and we can swing back to some of this other stuff here, but are there legal remedies? To what degree, if I go to see you, uh, well, I mean, if a shorter person goes to see you as a, a client and says, look, I think I've been passed over for promotion and I'm getting paid less than people who are uh, comparably employed but taller, what are their options? Is there anything under the law which can help them? There's really not much unless their height is due to a disability, in which case they can use the Americans with Disability Act or similar disability laws in other countries. Or if they can point to a way to uh, to somehow make it related to their gender. So they basically have to try to figure out a way to make it fit under an existing anti-discrimination scheme. Uh, But otherwise, no, there is no law against it. And I would say, and I have personally experienced it, is if somebody complains in the workplace of being mistreated because they're short, they will be laughed out of the room most of the time. Uh, They will be told that you're just taking things too personally. You need to get a sense of humor or what are you talking about? Yeah, it's it's interesting because all of us these days in our workplaces go through often mandatory DEI kinds of courses or, you know, uh, and and maybe the closest thing to it is we might 
be told or might be watching some kind of video that tells us not to comment on people's appearances, you know, but it's in that very general category uh, that that's not necessarily welcome uh, in the workplace. And and so I guess you could fold height into that, but height certainly isn't broken out. And that's kind of interesting, too, that once again, consciousness has not been raised to the point where you'd separate that out just in terms of employee training, Right. 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 It's very rare for anybody to even mention height as an issue. There's only a couple of states and city governments in the United States where uh, the ordinance, the local ordinances make it illegal to discriminate based on height uh, or physical appearance. But other than that, people don't even relate height as an issue to be discussed, you know. Yeah, and it's weird, too. I mean, you th- well, there's a lot, a lot to say about this, but let me just back up and say, so there's two reasons why we have DEI uh, courses or other kinds of, of uh, employee training to raise sensitivities and, uh, and consciousness about inclusion and, and, and disparagement. One of them is because our employers are wonderful people and they want the workplace to be a happy place in which other, well, uh, coworkers are not mistreated. But p- possibly... And you're the lawyer, not me. The more pressing reason is they don't want to get they don't want to get sued. They want to be right. able to show the certificate that was yes. printed out that says Colin McEnroe took this course. We told him not to do that. So if he did that, that's not on us. So don't bother suing us. So that means that obviously all the things that you're getting trained not to do in your workplace is to are by and large, things that other companies have been successfully sued for. So in a way, what you need, what I mean, you, somebody who's maybe interested in seeing some change on this front, is some kind of killer lawsuit with a $350 million judgment, right? And and how can that come if the laws don't track that way? It can't. It can't. I think that the way it works is is kind of the, the, there has to be a social movement first where people are aware that this is an issue and only then will laws follow. So if you think about it with respect to the LGBT movement, for a long time, none of that stuff was illegal. And then when socially and the media and actors and famous people started talking about it and bringing awareness to the world about the issues they were facing, only then did the laws begin to reflect what society wanted. So it has to come from society first. And then the laws will follow. The laws are never a leading indicator of anything. And it's weird, too, because not only, you know, is this a form of discrimination that's sort of tolerated, but as a result of that, I think there are a lot of people who could be bigger role models about this and maybe could lead the kind of social movement, social change, raising of consciousness that you're describing, except that... You know, I don't want to single out Michael J. Fox because he's got some other problems right now, too. And anyway, I think he's been pretty open about the fact that he's he's on the short side. But there are like a lot. We're going to be talking about this in the next segment. There are a lot of really famous actors who are not very tall. There are other people who are Yuri Gagarin, the first you know Russian cosmonaut. He was five. He's five, too. Um, but. A lot of times, I bet you, I bet you anything, the Soviet Union covered that up. You know, like yeah. it's a thing you cover up about yourself. You yeah, shoot people the, are ashamed of it. Right. right. You shoot the movie, so we don't know how tall Tom Cruise is. So that's a problem, right? The kind of people who would be spokespeople are people who don't want to be spokespeople. They don't, and they are ashamed of it, and they and they want to focus on overcoming their height. And when I published my book, none of the short, famous people I contacted 
to help promote it were interested in in promoting the topic or or in being involved in it it's sort of like we just want to bury the fact that we're short and not talk about it so you know another thing that people can start thinking about at a certain point and i think you have too is how short do i have to stay what could i do to get taller uh and human growth hormone is probably the most obvious answer. Um, so, and, and I, my understanding is that's something that you actually at least kind of mentally flirted with. I did because not for myself, but for my son, who was very short. And back then I had no real awareness of any of these issues. Um, but when I started seeing my son uh, being mistreated, I got so upset and angry about that, that I started looking more into the issue. And, and just kind of came upon this, this uh, mountain of mis disrespect and misinformation about growth hormones and how uh, short children are being kind of uh, directed to accept these long-term growth hormone treatments at a huge cost and at a huge uh, pain only to not really have any difference at all. So none of these growth hormone treatments doesn't have a growth hormone deficiency are actually effective, but you wouldn't really hear about that very much from anyone. So parents who are fretting a lot about how their kids are too short are kind of encouraged to put their kids on, on these long-term treatments without any proof that they actually work. And it's very, very disturbing. Right. So, I mean, if you combine our first guest with you, I mean, we can see just how crazy that idea is. It's, it's an idea yeah. born out of crazy attitudes towards short people. Not, uh, I mean, being short is not a disease that needs to be treated. Um, exactly. So, so uh, another thing's happening, or maybe two other things are happening. One of them is we went through a pandemic, and a lot of things started happening on Zoom. Um, and there, there are <laughs> there are a lot of people <laughs> that I kind of know whom I've never actually seen in the flesh uh, to just an amazingly high degree. Uh, and so there's sort of that. And, and I think that's kind of combined also with a larger trend towards uh, did, uh, virtual life where you can maybe have an avatar who looks, you know, like anything or is taller or shorter than you really are, that we're, we're probably moving more of our life out into the digital universe, even post-pandemic and post-reliance on Zoom, we're going to probably be a little less oriented towards, you know, the, the, the simple fleshly presentation that we make in the world every day. But maybe, first of all, talk about COVID. I assume COVID, in a way, the, the, the move towards Zoom meant that some of these pressures would diminish a little bit? Oh, it diminished so much. Uh, I, I hate to say that COVID was good in, in any way, but it was actually good for the super short people because all of a sudden, nobody could judge us based on our height. And we they, they were initially, if they never met you before, all they could see is your face and nobody knows what you're wearing underneath or how tall you are. So it's been an incredible experience for a lot of people to all of a sudden be free from that prejudgment that we often get when people see us face to face. And even if nobody says anything stupid, they're probably thinking it, uh, or they might be thinking some kind of negative thing about you based on your height, but not on Zoom. So it's it's been a real great experience for shorties. Yeah, and I think ultimately also, 
the, you know, the, back in the early stages of the Internet, there was a famous New Yorker cartoon. I think it was two dogs talking to one another. But one of the dogs is like looking at a laptop and saying, on the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Uh, <laughs> and on the Internet, nobody knows whether you're tall or short. They don't. I mean, people you we all even pre-COVID, we had the experience of meeting people after one, two, three years of online communication with them and finding out that they look different than we thought or that there was something we would radically missed about them uh, just because there was no way of knowing it. Um, and I don't know. I mean, does that give you any hope that we'll be a little less overemphasizing how people look in terms of their height? would have hope, except now I'm seeing people are really desperate to be back on in mm. person and just get back on. People were so sick of Zoom at the end of COVID that even though it's still being used a lot, for example, for job interviews, it's not used anymore. People want to see some candidate come face to face for a job interview, whereas before, you know, you didn't have to be there in person. You could just be interviewed on Zoom and it was a lot easier to, to get the job if they don't see how how short you are. But things are moving back in person for the really important things like jobs and, and you know, the, the more important things for your career are going back in real life. Well, I, hopefully that there's going to be change uh, once Arna and I get our publicity campaign going. How comfortable would you be hugging a really small pumpkin? Because uh, we might need that, too, for the, the, the pictures we want to send out. We want to get people. I'd be glad to. Okay. Be very happy to. <laughs> okay. okay. That, well, thank you. It was very important that I get that commitment from you. Uh, all right. Uh, Tanya, Tanya Osensky is a lawyer, author of the book Short Changed, Height Discrimination and Strategies for Social Change. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. All right, so our technical producer today is Cat Pastor. I don't really know how tall Cat is, but I know that she could she could play six one. You know, I mean. Uh, you know, like in the Rebecca Lobo story that they're filming, I wouldn't completely rule out Cat Pastor to play uh, Rebecca Lobo. And she's like 6'4", I think. Uh, and um, Jennifer LaRue, who produced this episode, keeps telling us how short she is. I don't know. Like, I haven't seen Jennifer not on Zoom in a really, really long time. So, you know, I'm, I, I guess I could believe anything, but I don't really think she's that short. Uh, Lily Tyson, of course, comes from a different planet. The whole height thing is just completely understood in a different way. Uh, she's our senior producer and helping out today. And I'm sure Jonathan McPants, who, who, well, anyway, he, he, he says he's not very tall. He says he's not that tall. Um, and but we're all comfortable with ourselves. All right, I got to stop babbling because we got to get to our next guest. William Mann is an author and historian whose new book Bogey and Bacall comes out in June. Um, so, uh, William Mann, first of all, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, in general, we we know that a lot of actors aren't maybe as tall as they play. It's almost like if you're a male actor, you just can sort of add an, an imputed four inches to your height somehow, you know? So but yes. talk about how this comes up in connection with Humphrey Bogart. Well, Humphrey Bogart was just barely 5'8". I mean, that's probably uh, generous to say he was 5'8". He was just under 5'8". 
And, you know, he becomes the biggest movie star of all time, according to many polls. Um, he's the tough guy, the quintessential tough guy of Hollywood. And so when he goes up against a leading lady, he can't be a couple of inches shorter uh, than they are. And uh, and there were many leading ladies who were taller than 5'8", and they just wouldn't play in Hollywood at the time. Well, I mean, one of those leading ladies might be Lauren Bacall, right? She's exactly. Like that's, she was absolutely one of them. She so, was 5'9", and, and, and she was all of 5'9". And Ingrid Bergman, I think there was some kind of movie called Casablanca where the two of them yeah. might have been in. So um, so what did they do about that? I mean, did, did, did it ultimately seem to matter? Well, yes. I mean, the public didn't catch on to that because the studios were very careful about making sure that their their uh, uh, stars were presented in the best possible way. So with Humphrey Bogart, that, that meant that... Uh, you know, certain shots had to be had to be shot from lower, so the camera's down below, so he appears bigger and, and more menacing. You know, he made a career out of playing cynical tough guys, cynical tough good guys, and the uh, uh, conflicted bad guys. So he he could never be seen as as smaller, you know, in any way. Um, but he also had these these contraptions where he would wear you know, elevator shoes, or he would uh, stand on a box sometimes to. Uh, um, when he was shot opposite his leading ladies. So there was there was a lot of careful um, presentation of the image. You know, and some of it, I think, might be, because we know Cruz is about 5'7". We know Pacino's about 5'7". Um, you know, and I that's, I think part of the problem is that we have in our minds amplified their height. So that, it, you know, if, we, if you see them in the flesh and they're 5'7", it looks like they're 5'2", right? Because you've got this kind of idea yeah. about who they are. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, that was the thing with Humphrey Bogart. You know, it was so important when he made uh, public public appearances that Bacall would have to wear flats and that he would probably wear some elevator shoes. Um, it was really, you know, I, I interviewed a guy by the name of um, Richard Iyer, who's in his 70s now. But as a kid, he, he made a picture with Bogart called The Desperate Hours, in which in which Bogart was the, the villain. And Frederick March was the hero. Now Frederick March was March was something like five eleven, and and Bogart comes in at five eight, and you know he he had to be menacing because that the only way the the, the story could work. And Richard Iyer was this you know young kid. He was he was about nine years old, and he said, "I saw Humphrey Bogart for the first time walking across the set," and he said, "I couldn't believe what I saw." He was walking on wooden platforms that were strapped to his shoes. So he comes clumping across the soundstage and and the, the little boy who's supposed to be, you know, in his scene, in his part, is j- just cannot stop staring at these wooden blocks that Humphrey Bogart is walking around on the stage. So, you know, that's the thing he always remembered about that picture. Right. I mean, I think presumably, not just presumably, but the whole shoemaking thing has gotten even more subtle and sophisticated. There's I think, oh, yeah. a, an Italian shoemaker who claims that he, he's added four inches to Stallone's height for his entire career, you know, but, right. but not like it looks like somebody strapped a couple of two by fours uh, onto your feet. Uh, right, I mean, right. it can be done more yeah. subtly now. So how, how did this play in Bogart's mind and in his sense of himself. We should say that in addition to being 5'7", he wasn't like bulky, right? He was a no, relatively no, he was... light, light weight. No, but not a lightweight, yeah. but a lightweight. He was, he was like 150, um, you know, concave chest. He was, he was you know, um, I think it's, he had a 38 chest. So he, he was not a big guy in any, in any way. And so he did. There was some, um, you know, emotional distress around that for him at times um he uh 
um, you know, he, he was always trying to live up to that image of being the tough guy. You know, he, he had started out playing the dandy, you know, when on Broadway, he was, he was the, uh, you know, the, the cad, the, the womanizer, the great lover. And then suddenly he, he hits it big in the movies and he's playing bad guys all the time. So he has to, or as I said, cynical good guys, and he has to, you know, he has to keep them in that image up. And it, it was, it was hard for him. Sometimes he was, he was embarrassed by that. He was embarrassed by the fact that he was losing his hair and that, you know, he had to wear a wig. So keeping that illusion alive was very important. I mean, it's interesting, too, because when you think about Bogart and what we like him for and what we remember him for, yeah, Maltese fought Falcon. He's got to be kind of a tough guy. But but mostly he's kind of he's like the cool guy. Right. And he has cool things yeah. to say and he talks in kind of a cool way. And I mean, he really is, I think, somebody we appreciate sort of verbally and in terms of style more than we think of him like he's Gary Cooper or something. Right. And you know, I think that's really, really unusual. Unlike he was an unlikely star. Um, and it really goes to, you know, to his chemistry, to his charisma, to um, to the image he was putting across the, you know, that kind of um, uh, a, a guy who took no uh, crap from anyone who was always um, speaking the truth to power. Um, and that made up for the fact that he wasn't Gary Cooper or Clark Gable. So um, this might be the last question here, but, um, you know, while that was happening, you know, FDR was president and certain things about FDR were possible to conceal from the press and public with a certain amount of cooperation from the press. Um, right. We live in a different era right now. I mean, if Bogart were active today, I'm thinking we would probably I mean, to just not that there was no such thing as the paparazzi in the 1940s, but because there were, you know, there were flashbulbs going off at premieres yeah. and stuff like that. But, you know, you couldn't you can't go shopping today without somebody taking pictures of you if you're famous. Right. Oh, absolutely. And and there was press cooperation with Bogart as well. He was very, very uh, rarely photographed without his toupee. And that was something that was an agreement among the photographers um, today that, you know, they'd be getting him every time he, you know, got out of a cab or, you know, um, got home at night. He, you know, he, we would see him in all his uh, his physical reality. Um, but but at the time, it, it was pretty carefully um, uh measured out to the public there really wasn't a um not that i that, that there weren't occasionally a photo got out that showed him being shorter than lauren bacall or maybe without his wig but in general the image was very much controlled all right well william mann first of all i usually do go out without my toupee because it's the worst toupee in public radio but um <laughs> i got it actually from making a big donation to npr uh author and historian whose new book bogey and bacall will come out in june so much more to learn and thanks for listening thanks to jennifer larue for this great show too 